Hello everyone, welcome to Users First, a UX design podcast. I'm your host, Alessio Ferracuti, and today our special guest is Rob Gifford. Rob is an experience design director at MedPal in the United States, and a product leader who has been applying uh, lean and design thinking for the healthcare and financial services for the past uh, few years, for the past decade actually. Uh, today with Rob, we'll be touching some very interesting topics, including how we can make the user's life uh, much, much easier by simplifying their decisions. Welcome to the podcast, Rob. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It's great to be here, Lucia. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited to, to have you here too. Uh, what time What time is it right now in the, in the States? Uh, Boston, right? Yeah, it's uh, 2.15, so we're Eastern, Eastern time here, so... Okay. Will be handy in the day, I think. Just getting started. Just getting started. Perfect. <laughs> but, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I've seen I've seen that you that you have lately uh, done uh, some some trips. I've heard from your site that you went to China lately. Yeah, I went to China. My wife and I went there a couple of years ago. Um, spent a couple of weeks there. It was awesome. It was it was great. I'm actually um, my ancestry is half Chinese, so that's been kind of part of growing up, and uh, it was great to go to go to China wow. for a little bit and really kind of um, you know, check it out. It, it was interesting. We did a total kind of planned the tour and I uh, highly recommend that um, just every day doing something different. Yeah. Amazing. Just tourism. Amazing. Um, yeah. Like, uh, like I mentioned before, you know, you've had a lot of experience in the uh, healthcare and the financial sectors. Uh, I wanted to ask you today, uh, what are, what are the biggest, uh, frustrations in the users that you have encountered in these, uh, types of sectors? Every sector has, you know, a user that has different types of problems. What are the main problems that yeah. uh, you found for these users? Well, a lot of the work that I've done in healthcare, both in healthcare and financial services around insurance. So health insurance, which is big in the States, um, it's very consumerized. People have a lot more responsibility choosing their healthcare plans. Um, and then um, you know, help uh, property and casualty insurance in the financial space. So things like homeowners or renters insurance, car insurance. Um, and then I've done a bit of work in sort of the genomics um, space and, and a little bit more consumer healthcare. So I think the biggest things, you know, if I were to say across the board are, um, too much or too uh, technical of information uh, for users to really make sense out of, right? So I think both fields are highly technical. Uh, they're very specific and precise in the words they use and in the way that data needs to be presented um, or the way that data can be made sense of. But then on the flip side, you have users who are just touching on these products really briefly. They're not, you know, in terms of the digital experiences, they're not, um, living and breathing in a lot of them, right? They, they may go on a website, be, be asked to make a choice uh, between insurance plans, or they may be, um, you think about something like 23 me or a genomics product, uh, which, which I will experience with. Um, mm-hmm. They, uh, you know, the field of genomics is so complicated and so technical. They're, they're in there, they're just trying to find a few pieces of information that are really actionable to them and useful to them um, without needing to ramp up and become experts. So I think the whole kind of UX maxim of like people are um, cognitive misers or they're trying to, um, yeah, they're really just trying to go about their, their daily life and spend as little mental energy as possible to get what they need from whatever product they're using. Um, I think that's really found um, acutely in healthcare and financial services because these are 
experiences that are very impactful to people's lives, but they're not living and breathing in, you know, healthcare apps or financial apps as much as, uh, you know, mm-hmm. designers of what we like to think they are. Mm-hmm. So whether you're too technical or overload of information and, to be honest, uh, that's what I feel when I go on my uh, mobile banking app. <laughs> like I just want to do something and, you know, I'm, I'm led somewhere else. Or actually with the, with the mobile app that I have right now, uh, because I just recently changed bank, I'm, I, I, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty good with it. It's, very, it's yeah. very easy to use. But the previous ones that I had, I think uh, five years ago, six years ago, when the, when the banking apps first uh, began uh, appearing, I think yeah. it, was, it, it was literally a mess. I would have rather go straight to the counter at the branch yeah. and just ask for things than using the mobile app or even digital banking. And one of, yeah, one of the funny things sure. is that like um, sometimes when there is bad UX, um, <laughs> even the easiest information can be, can seem quite technical. So it doesn't have yeah. to be such, such technical field to, to make you feel like overload of information. That's absolutely true. For sure. You know, I think there's always a bias, um, as product people, as subject matter experts, as to some extent designers, when we're living in a space, whatever that space is, we see all the complexity there. We see all the potential information that can be presented to users, the potential features, the potential choices they could have. Because we're more on the expert end of the spectrum. We're bringing that lens to the product. So I think that there's this natural process of having to kind of cull away those biases to present something that's really simple mm-hmm. uh, for users. Well, and uh, how do you think that, uh, for example, like the overload of information, the the technical the technical parts of information and the bias can be removed for the user to be able to um, be more in control of the of the product that he's using and make more uh, sensible choices decisions. Yeah, yeah, that's a big question. I mean, there's a couple of things going on there. I think, like macro level, as designers, what we can do is. Uh, start from like a more of a goal orientation in terms of um, the use cases that we generate uh, and the features that we generate really, right? And rather than thinking about the data we have and, you know, what could be cool or how we can present it in a clear way, we should probably think about, you know, what are the decisions that users need to make? What, how are they using this in their life? Where are they getting value from the product? And then work backwards to uh, identify what data they actually need uh, because that, that definitely limits the set of uh, information that could be presented. Um, so that's just typical, you know, I think really just going hard into the um, user-centered design um, philosophy there. But I think there's always a tendency to be kind of solution first um, when we think about products and we're being creative. So I think it's just fighting that tendency and really, really starting with things like, you know, identifying use cases, global goals that users are going to have, and then kind of working through, um, you know, to identify how the interface looks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely. And, um, you know, uh, there is obviously like many choices that the user can be given according to what's most important. And how how many choices do you think it's important that the users should have? Obviously, every situation is different. Financial is different yeah. from the health sector. <clears throat> but the concept is the same. Uh, decision making and uh, how many choices they, they can have. Yeah, that's, a, that's another great question. Um, and so it's, you know, I think it's, it's helpful to have concrete things, right? When we're, we're thinking about heuristics or principles um, of designing for decisions. Um, 
I don't think there's a one single answer. I think, you know, I think that you know, the, the global, like the sort of main answer I give is that it depends on people's working memory and people's ability to compare and contrast any sort of um, set of options. So you think about Miller's law, um, the, the, the often cited principle, you know, people's working memory can retain between you know, five and seven things at once. That's why you see a lot of choices that are presented in kind of three to five range. Uh, when there are just distinct packages presented. Um, mm -hmm. What it really comes down to is, is sort of the sophistication of the user, right? It's the sophistication of the user and the complexity of the space. So you think about those two things kind of on two sides of, of the scale, right? And so if you're a really sophisticated user, you can deal with lots of choices and decisions because you have strategies for winnowing out, filtering things that are irrelevant to you. Um, and as designers, we can help sort of organize kind of a plethora of options in a way that um, it allows people to quickly find what they're looking for. So I, th I think that the, um, the, the metaphor I like to think of there is like, um, you know, a contractor going into a hardware store or um, we have Home Depot in the States, but um, like a, you know, a big uh, construction store, they're easily, they know exactly what aisle to go to. They know exactly what piece to find because of clear preferences. They've been through scenarios, decision-making scenarios before. So they're okay with lots of choice and lots of options. Whereas when I go to a store like that, I'm like totally overwhelmed. It takes me like an hour and a half just to, <laughs> just to find what I'm looking for and never, never mind getting there and back. Um, so the expertise of the user, definitely the higher that is uh, in terms of the experience they've had with a decision or an interface or um, the, the more preference they have, like the, the stronger the preferences are, then they can take higher levels of choice or more and more granularity of choice. If somebody's um, new to a decision and they don't have a lot of preferences based on experiences, they really need to they really need to scale those back towards something that's really more in that three to five range um, where they can kind of anchor to one or two sides and then compare in between a couple. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, I see. And, uh, you know, uh, say that, you know, you're in Home Depot and, you know, you have uh, two or three uh, or four even uh, very similar things. And, you know, you kind of know what they're there for, but uh, <laughs> you're not really sure what's going on. How can you like maybe um, interaction design related or even just UX related, how can you make sure that uh, the user know that um, that uh, one one choice is uh, different, is very, very different from another choice? How do you compare uh, choices for the users yeah. to be able to easily make decisions? Well, I think the, 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 the main thing here is... Um knowing what the outcome of making a choice is. So this, choose this if, you, if you're looking to have this type of outcome, if you're doing this type of a thing, right? So people are less interested. Again, that bias we have as product people and as subject matter experts a lot of times is to think about the product, but think about, you know, flip the, flip the perspective and think about the user and what they're trying to accomplish. So if you think about um, in their life, what are they trying to accomplish? So for example, with an investment product or a financial product life, right? If I'm looking to um, invest for retirement and you're, you're fairly young, you're gonna want a certain set of options that are a little bit more high risk, right? Versus if you, if you need the money out next year or the year after, you're gonna want low risk options. And so framing things in terms of who the, who the options might be good for, or what the use case, or what the user's goals are, and how those options are gonna achieve those goals um, is definitely kind of the first thing from a content perspective that, that I would suggest doing. 
And the second thing is just from an interaction and visual design perspective, like um, elevate the differences between things, right? There's probably a whole host of details about each product or each, um, each offering. Um, but in reality, if you present all of those details, a good portion of them are going to be somewhere or irrelevant to, to customers um, or users. Mm -hmm. So it's so really highlight the most meaningful and impactful differences. And you can do that through all sorts of kind of visual design tricks, I guess. But, um, but that's what I, that's what I would focus on. Um, you know, with the word kind of saliency, saliency comes up or making something salient so more prominent uh, perceptually. Like that is how you, that's what you need to focus is, is aligning saliency to, um, the things that are important differences that you want to draw people's eyes towards and, and um, mm -hmm. mind towards, mm -hmm. I guess. Absolutely. And, uh, one of the things that I really liked about, um, uh, about uh, your um, decision-making process and the thinking is how you can apply uh, because I've seen I've seen your portfolio and um, I I've seen it um, at the scenarios work for the financial um, for the financial website yeah. and I really liked the way that um, you display scenarios of uh, past experiences that happened to other users and you display them to the new users in order to explain why the choice is more suitable to them or why why their choice is is uh, less dangerous and it, it's better i i really like that um um like empathizing with a user that is empathizing with other people yeah, that's yeah. that's like that's really cool you know like applying past experiences of, of new users um yeah yeah definitely definitely cool good that's good year yeah well when when um yeah um you know the the healthcare and and the and the finances sector have have like a big uh they have like a big range of um user user age and uh and experiences how do you usually approach that like, you know, sometimes it's pretty simple. Um, most projects are, yeah. you know, very simple. You know, you know who the user is, uh, you know what they're about, you know what they do, you know what their goals are. But for the financial sector, it's actually a very, very range of options that you could go for. How do you decide which kind of research you do for these types of projects? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's going to vary on project to project. Um, I work at a company, Madpow, where... Um, kind of focus on financial services and, and um, healthcare. So I think we're, you know, we kind of see just general kind of archetypes there. Um, we have a, actually a, a behavioral segmentation process um, or product called Impact, where we actually have kind of broken out different, uh, different types of behavioral attributes in terms of like decision-making, attitude towards risk, and um, you know, things that are not necessarily demographic features, but they're... Uh, they're really more psychological attributes. Um, so, so we use that sometimes. Um, but I think the short answer is, you know, we approach it fairly uh, distinctly on each project. I, I'm a big, I guess, I, you know, I'm a big uh, fan of, of having a lot of inputs to your design process. So um, I'll, I'll typically advocate for a, um, a discovery phase where we'll go out and we'll interview different users, um, you know, anywhere we between five and 20 users and, and really get an understanding of, of their mindset towards the, you know, when they're using a product to accomplish something that we're, that we're tasked with improving. Um, and also like a lot of companies, yeah, it's, it's something you have to do. And I think it's something that, um, 
it's uh, it's underrated. I think there's a lot of focus on lean right now in the industry, and I'm, I'm a proponent of lean for sure. Um, Especially remote but, research right now. I mean, there yeah. is no other option. Well, what you just said, it's, it would be impossible nowadays yeah. just to go there on the spot and actually research users. Yeah, but you can actually do, um, you can learn a lot just from an interview with somebody, surprisingly. You know, so you can't, it's harder to do the ethnographical type research. Um, but you can learn a lot in terms of having somebody walk through um, you know, process or a decision they made and even showing them, um, you know, an experience or a digital experience, right. The, the current state that maybe a client or a company has are trying to redesign, having them kind of simulate going through that and using WebEx or Zoom to, to, uh, just have them think aloud and kind of see what they're, they're doing on their screen. Um, mm-hmm. so that's what we would tend to do now, nowadays. Um, so yeah, doing that upfront research is really important then kind of thinking about breaking apart sort of what are the key differences between the people that we interviewed in terms of their, their approach to, um, to the problem that they're trying to solve and to the product that we're trying to improve. And then a lot of times, you know, I think we're, we're lucky to work with, um, you know, clients who a lot of times are really pretty invested in researching and, um, UX. Uh, so they have a lot of their own kind of existing research, whether that's survey data or uh, existing personal work that they've done. So, Definitely, definitely. Um, actually, I've seen from uh, some of your recent projects that um, I'm not sure if it's uh, recent projects that you, you like. I'm not sure if you like or or you are working on it uh, on uh, the, the redesigner of um, airports. Of uh, airports. Uh, oh no, I'm just interested in it. You know, it's funny. Um, the, the company that I uh, work for, we we do. Um, they ask you to fill out a survey. Uh, wouldn't you join so they can write a bio on your uh, on their website about you? So oh, it's kind okay. of a cool, cool, cool thing. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> I get it. So I'm like, yeah, they're, you know, well, what, if you could um, you know, redesign anything, uh, what would it be? You know, so, like airports, there's so much wasted time and such a complicated process. That would be kind of fun. No but, way. So you would do that? Like if I you would, had the yeah. like if a client came to you nowadays, and you know, which could happen, by the way, because during coronavirus, you know, there is no no more people are, are buying as many flights as they used to. I know, yeah. So you know, they could they could come to you and say like, "Hey, man, you know, we need someone to redesign our airport because people don't want to come here anymore." Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> how you know what would you improve that uh, you know it would make people more willing to come here, or you know, yeah. or or uh, obviously, yeah, they're not more willing to go there, but to make their experience more enjoyable while they're at the airport yeah totally i mean that would be so fun especially now with covid and everything going on too like that's so i think i answered that question three or four years ago on the website but i um yeah now it's like fascinating to think about like what how do people feel comfortable with certain situations right i think we were talking about it earlier like you um you hear somebody coughing and you're like, Oh man, what you know, like your, your, uh, your radars go, your spider senses go off. Right. And, oh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, so yeah, the psychology behind that's really fascinating. And I'd love to kind of dive into that, and it, but it's really impressive how, um, it's maybe a little bit of a tangent, but at least in the States, probably in, in, uh, in Scotland as well, uh, like companies have just adapted so quickly in terms of their service model and their service design and UX design to like accommodating people's needs, right? Like, so you can, everyone's doing curbside pickup here and, um, 
just menu, like how you view menus at restaurants now. We're like, put, we're, we're getting yeah. the QR code. That's a good thing. That's like the key use case for a QR code adoption. Oh, I yeah. Feel like. Actually, good that you mentioned that because the other day I went to get a coffee out um, in, in some bar nearby. And uh, I was outside uh, on the coffee table and I was waiting for, for I was waiting for the waitress to, to come yeah. and get my order. And I waited about like 15 minutes and then I called the waitress and asked her, you know, what's happening? Why is nobody taking my order? And she said, why don't you know? Now we only take, there was a paper on the table and she pointed at the paper and she said, now we only take orders online. Oh my God. Like, why would you know that? Right. Yeah. I mean, there was, there was one paper on the table, on the table. And I, I I suppose there was one paper saying like, oh, you know, coronavirus and, you know, put the sanitizer on your hands and so on. Instead, through the paper you actually had to put a, a token on, uh, on on application and order your cappuccinos from the application but <laughs> I, I didn't know that and things have completely changed i mean you know how if every restaurant or bar would would do that the the, the industry would be completely impacted so much there wouldn't be waitresses totally. anymore yeah. there wouldn't be as many as there used to yeah yeah crazy. for sure it, it's gonna have all these effects on yeah, the economy, um, it's its really just automation, right? It's the next step of automation. There's like this key event that happens that forces companies to adapt. And I think you, you probably won't see a lot of, um, you'll see a lot more companies doing that or restaurants doing that. I think mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, definitely the need for staff is going to go down a little bit. Yeah. Also, I've noticed uh, research completely has changed in terms of uh, design and also yeah. um, collaboration collaboration yeah. in the in design teams how how have you have you experienced that um b- before you were um in, on vacation i guess <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 um no it's huge i mean i've been working out of my room my guest bedroom for the last um six months really and uh but doing the same job exactly the same job and i've started like two new projects and um so on the collaboration side, um, you know, obviously Zoom, huge. Um, but what we're using is, is Mural. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with that tool. Uh, but oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, a, a big part of our job and uh, as a consultant, as a design consultant, is going and you know, hosting in-person workshops. And it's kind of the backbone of, of what we do in a lot of ways. We'll kick every project off that way. Um, and we can't do that anymore. All of a sudden, you couldn't do that anymore. So... So we adopted Mural, and I think um, I've been—I've just been super impressed with like just the design of Mural. How close to like the real experience of if you combine Zoom and Mural, like you can get pretty close to that experience of workshopping uh, in person with stickies. And it's actually—I think it's more efficient in some ways um, because you, you can get the ideas down in your head faster. Like you can just type it faster than you can write with a um, sharpie. You after the workshop is done, you get like the artifact that documents um, the thinking mm-hmm. that everybody had. And, D- just double um, click yeah, to, to get the post-it note. You don't have to, you know, before you used to, you know, get the post-it note, uh, put it on the wall and then write it or the, the, the thing. No, you just double click and you write. It's so much easier. Double click, totally yeah. right. Yeah. We, we have a joke in our office because there was, um, I think at some point somebody bought these generic sticky notes and they're like blue <laughs> and they're like from like, uh, you know, the, whatever generic brand. And whenever you, they were just kind of like interspersed with all the other stickies. So when you went to a workshop, like the stick, these generic stickies would always fall off the wall. Uh-huh. And so you'd be like, I'll make sure there's no blue stickies on, you know, <laughs> or else, or else you just have one person like go around and always like, you know, putting the blue stickies yeah, up, taking pictures where they're. Yeah. So there's just this like, there's these funny, like, you know, 
physical tactile things yes. that, that yes. I think we, we thought were really important, but I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, now I'm, I'm kind of thinking maybe I have they are. a pro mis- question. Uh, how do you put your yeah. sticky notes, horizontal or vertical? <laughs> well, these ones are square, so it doesn't matter. Um, oh, in terms of, I do, I don't know, horizontal, I guess. Yeah. You know, because there is a myth. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Yeah, because if you put them horizontal, they last longer. Really? Yeah. Because oh, it's like, maybe there's less weight dragging down or something. That's a- Yeah, I, I think I think that's the reason. Um to be, to be honest, I've, I've tried it a couple of times, uh, in my own personal space. I haven't tried it at work and yeah. I think it works. I think it works. <laughs> awesome. All right. We'll bring the blue stickies back then and we can, we can use it now because this was all worth it. <laughs> Amazing. And that's one of the things that I love about, uh, Miro is that the stickies never fall off. You never have the yeah. problem. Yeah. Yeah. They're good. They're good products for yeah. sure. Yeah. I think it's just, um, so that, that was my answer. I think to, to collaborate yeah. mural is awesome. No, you can get it. pretty close to that, you know, but I think that the key principle here is like visualizing information when it comes to remote. I, I found that's like super helpful. So there's just so many more opportunities for people to be distracted or multitask or think they understand what's going on and we're being said in the conversation. So now I'm trying to like experiment with like just always visualizing what we're talking about. So you start a meeting, you have the agenda typed up and on a, a Dropbox paper or Evernote and you fill in what's being said. Uh, or the main points while people are talking, so everyone can kind of see it. Um, so I don't know. That's just circling back on like how, you know what's changed or what what are the helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I felt the same way, and and with my with my colleagues, we we actually working in the same exact uh, way that you that you just said. Um, cool. Just taking notes uh, right on the spot. Well, before someone couldn't, or, or or some you know was just like busy talking, and you know you yeah. couldn't obviously be in the keyboard during the meeting. But now everybody has the same chance, and and um, every every meeting can be recorded, and and the goals can always uh, be you know be recorded for later on in. In documents and there is more yeah. documentation there is yeah i have to say that yeah it's it's very yeah. good i like it um you know i had one question about uh as i was going through your work i noticed uh something that intrigued me that um obviously it, it's a it, it's a normal process um during during projects um there was a <clears throat> there was a there was a one of your projects where you um, where you mentioned um, the way they usually work, where you work on uh, based on six steps. Uh, the first two steps um, are the alignment of the project, where you ramp up and do planning, and uh, the second step is where you do ideation workshops. This was a project that um, I've seen on, on um, of your own. Oh, was that like on a case study or something? Yes, your case studies. And then okay. there is uh, the other rest of the steps. There was uh, iterative design, and there is uh, lots of sprints, and then in the end, a, uh, a synth- yeah. um the summary of this of everything. I wanted to ask you, um, what, like these these sprints that you have in the iterative design, are they all aimed? Do they have like every sprint? has a different aim how do you how do you usually uh, run them well it depends i think the short answer is it depends what the client has time and budget for you know so i think getting any amount of feedback and iterating a short um rev or, or iteration on it within a sprint i think that's you know it's 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 great um but some problems, it just it just depends on you know the size of the problem that you're trying to address. You you want to think in an ideal world, you'd size the problems that you're addressing 
to um, a sprint life. You think about agile, like every story is broken down or something you accomplished in a sprint. But in design, everything's so interconnected and it might make sense to think about something holistically at a high level, get some feedback and then and do an iteration sprint. Um, so that's kind of how I approach it. Um, so I'm pretty flexible about it. I, I think the, the key principles that I follow are like start low fidelity, get a wide view of, of the problem. So if you can if you can get some you know, tests of something that's really kind of low fidelity, try multiple concepts out, um, align on that by the end of the sprint you know, one promising concept that really low fidelity and then move into more high fidelity in the next sprint. Um, that's something that, that I think tends to work well when you're addressing like a much bigger problem. Why, um, why would it be, yeah. uh, why, um, why would a low fidelity prototype uh, bring up more discussion uh, among stakeholders and clients? Yeah, well, I think, you know, it definitely depends on what uh, design problem you're trying to solve. So if, you did, if you're solving something that's fairly constrained and, Really, you're tweaking something that exists in a, in a minor way. I think high fidelity is fine. Um, I'm a big proponent of low fidelity first for a lot of cases, though, because um, it allows you to explore much wider um, possibilities and concepts, right? There's, there's For any different design challenge, what I've found is like we're always kind of, there's always more ways of solving it than, than you initially think there are. Um, so it allows you to explore those in a really kind of low effort, easy way. Um, so that's one thing, just the cost of doing it is lower in terms of time um, and ultimately resources and, and money. Um, but the other side is you get less invested um, in any given concept, uh, concept right? You, you, you hold them a little bit more lightly in your hands. So you're, you're more kind of willing, teams are more willing to throw one away and adopt something else or mix them together in a way that's um, more creative. So I find it's easier to kind Definitely. of work with. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's what I've seen at least. And I'm sure there's, there's definitely scenarios where you're testing something that's much more visual and it's more about the perception of um, something that's higher fidelity and you need that high fidelity. So I can definitely see that working in a lot of cases, but when you're starting something, when you're going through a major redesign of something, I think, or, you know, product or a big part of a product. And I think it makes sense to go with fidelity. De- definitely. Um, I, 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 can, I can see why, why it works. Um, I've seen actually uh, amazing results with uh, low fidelity prototypes, just things, uh, playing around with, uh, with things or just like moving things around, even, even during, uh, even during a sprint itself, uh, you yeah. can play around with the, with the prototype. I'm not sure if that's UX legal, but, uh, <laughs> move things around in, yeah, a, in front a, of your clients. There's a method, the right method. Have you heard of that? R-I-T-E. So that came out of my, my I've heard of it. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure what's, uh, what, what's about. Well, that's, um, so that method is, uh, basically, you know, it's like a typical sprint you test with like five or six users. If you find something between a test or after one test, that's like a big, um, a big usability bug or a big issue and everyone on the team agrees on it, then you can change it in between users and then test the, the new version with that second user. So it, it kind of combines like user testing with just using your judgment about stuff. So hopefully by the end of that fifth or sixth user, your prototype's actually better than it was when you started. It's a way to accelerate the design process. I like it. I like it. Uh, it seems very effective. Uh, definitely looking forward to trying that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's good. You just got to be, you know, you just got to like be, have a lot more discussion between sessions to figure out like, you know, what to make, what sense to make out of the feedback you're getting. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, col- collaboration and uh, communication is uh, extremely yeah. important. Yeah. Yes. Totally. 
what what other uh, thing? I uh, had a couple of more questions. Um, you being um, as a design lead, um, uh, you know, be the director uh, of design um, at uh, MedPow, or even in other in other companies. Obviously, you had a lot of experience, so you've been uh, a design uh, lead in other companies as well. Um, what's a, what what's been your biggest difficulty in uh, in leading a design team? Um, I mean, it doesn't have to be specifically on a project. It could also be like maybe dealing with some difficult uh, ego-driven designers, <laughs> which could happen. <laughs> this is just this is just an example. And and how do yeah, you yeah, deal sure. with a with a hard with a hard to to the to lead a design team? Um, yeah. So just to kind of clarify my role here. So I'm a design lead in the sense that I lead projects um, at MapPass. It could be anywhere from one to five, six designers um, function a similar role in another company. But MapPass is a you know, big design organization. So I report up to someone who actually you know, manages the, the mm -hmm. whole design team, manages the leads. Mm -hmm. um, so my, my question was general, yeah. your, your career, your career, no, no, yeah. no, 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 yeah, for sure. Um, I've been pretty fortunate to work with people that are pretty great. I've had too many issues from like a um, people management perspective. Um, but I think the biggest challenge that you face is like a design lead, whether you're leading a project or product, whatever department is like setting the vision um, and getting clarity around like giving clarity, sorry, uh, giving clarity to people in your designers. Right. So I think, uh, like, as you know, in the, the Buster Nurses podcast, probably know that, that, that most of the folks that are in the UX field are pretty self-motivated and, and, and are intrinsically interested in what they're doing. Like they're, they're, there's an element of perfectionism I've seen in like everybody in terms of like trying to you know, do the right thing, really kind of unravel problems. Um, so the biggest challenge is not necessarily telling people what to do, I find, um, but it's like giving direction on what are the most meaningful problems to solve ensuring that those problems are being solved and people's energy is focused on the most meaningful stuff. Um, and then ultimately, you know, any experience or design can be, take lots of different shapes or formats, right? And there's lots of ways to solve things. You know, there's so many products that do similar things that kind of look and feel differently. So the other big component of design leadership, I think is, is setting out sort of the directional vision for what the product should feel and behave like and work like in a way that I always find it's like, it's easy to kind of underestimate how much, um, it's easier to overestimate how much people, uh, understand what's in my head. I, I guess in terms of like, I see it like this, right. And, and, and you think about a product and you yes. think about, you have a kind of a clear sense for how it should be without even designing screens, right. You kind of have a sense for how it should, how that it should comes be from experience. That comes yeah. from experience. Yes. Yeah, it comes from experience and being in the industry, and uh, and it matters. And it matters the tone of the product. It matters the level of information. The um, you know, use cases matter in terms of solving for those. So it's relaying that information to your design team in a way that's clear, in a way that um, you know, helps them kind of lock on to that that a similar wavelength or collect feedback back from them or revise your vision, right? Um, but it, it's getting that alignment as a team. I think that's I, that, that's the biggest part of leadership to me. It's not necessarily like kind of managing the work people are doing, but it's it's more kind of setting that vision and getting clarity around it. Definitely, I love it, man. I love it. I don't have any more questions. Uh, that was my wrap up question. I I really really enjoyed um, 
having this episode with you. I actually learned so much. Um, I'm a junior designer myself. And for me, asking you these questions is amazing because I can learn so much from experienced people like you. And, uh, you know, seeing your work and how you're passionate about it and how you're passionate also about life, it motivates me and it motivates other people who are listening to the podcast uh, to do better, I think. Um, we can learn a lot. We can learn a lot from you, man. Yeah. yeah, I appreciate that. It, it, it's, um, I think it's great that you're doing this podcast. It's a great service to the community and I enjoyed myself for the, for the, the hour, uh, obviously, but, um, but yeah, I hope your, hope your users get, uh, get, you know, learn something, uh, through this conversation and, and definitely thank you too for going through the effort to orchestrate all of this and put this out there. Um, thank you. For all your guests. I really enjoyed talking to Rob about how the mind of users work based on previous experiences and what we as designers can do to make their life easier. At the end of the day, it's our job to help users make decisions in a very simple way and making them feel in control and knowledgeable about the product they're using. This is not easy to do and it takes a lot of experience as well as empathy towards the user. I hope you liked this episode. And please stay tuned because we will have a lot more interesting guests sharing their experience with us in the upcoming weeks. Cheers.